Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for having us in your podcast queue. I want to remind you that uh, you can stay in touch with us by using our contact form at thenexttrack.com. We're always looking for episode topics. You can also follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. A couple of program notes. One of our favorite guests, Andy Doe, will be joining us next week, where the topic will be the current state and future of vinyl. And this is episode number 104 of The Next Track, which means we've been doing this weekly for two years. Sort of a little anniversary. We appreciate having you as a listener and for your support. We haven't done an episode about iTunes in a while, and some recent news, or so-called news, kind of got our attention. There's a website whose name I will not mention that has been trying to convince people for months now, maybe even a year or more, that Apple has planned that they will stop selling downloads. And they're pushing this, and they're trying to get other people to write about it, and every once in a while another website or magazine or newspaper writes about it because some insider source has told them they're going to stop selling downloads in January 2018. Oh, wait, no, that didn't work. No, it was March 2018. No, it didn't happen then either, did it? In a way, this is like the great disappointment. If you don't know what the great disappointment is, Google it. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, these uh, end-of-the-world cults who'll predict over and over and over again the date of the end of everything or that mayan calendar thing a few years ago or or even y2k um (laughs) i'm not sure if this is just clickbait or they have some kind of agenda or what the issue is i personally i can't believe that apple would simply just stop selling file downloads first of all it keeps users in the ecosystem and if apple stopped selling downloads someone else would pick up the slack most likely amazon and I don't think Apple would want to give up this advantage to to Amazon. I don't buy as many downloads as I used to, but Apple recently reported its revenue from services was up, and that includes revenue from the iTunes Store. And, you know, an edge is an edge. Yeah, I think the, the assumption that Apple would stop selling downloads is based on a fallacy because the, the idea that for some reason they would flip this little switch that means that all of the music files that they have perfectly tagged and all ready to stream, they just wouldn't want to sell them as downloads is is really limited thinking because it, it's that simple. When a record label releases an album, they upload the files to Apple and they essentially upload by default to sell them and they check a little box saying that it's cleared for streaming, which makes them available for streaming. They're exactly the same files, whether they're downloaded or streamed, they're the same format, the same bit rate. Well, Apple does the conversion. You upload a, a a certain type of file that is lossless, and then Apple converts it. But there's absolutely no reason for Apple, who runs this like a huge database, which is providing the same information for the most part on the store side and the streaming side. There's absolutely no reason for them to say, well, you know what? We just don't want to sell downloads anymore because there's a website that said we shouldn't. Yeah, I, I, I mean... They're the middleman, too. The record labels probably appreciate the income that they get from this as well. And I, one of the things I maintain is that they are probably more of, a, of, a, of an influence on, on, on whether Apple sells downloads or not. I mean, I think they want the money. And I, as I've said before, as long as, as long as record labels are making a few bucks from a few file downloads, then they'll insist that they keep being sold. Yeah. And so the real question is, what is the future of iTunes? And, and how will it morph into 
iTunes 3.0 because we're definitely in the second version now that we've got, you know, videos for rent and, and streaming and all that. Because initially iTunes was just for music. I, I think the first thing to note, and, and I'm so tired of reading articles by people who think that iTunes should be destroyed or renamed because it doesn't only sell music. Does anyone remember IBM? They used to sell computers. Well, now they're a consulting company. They're not going to get rid of the goodwill of the brand recognition that they have just because they're not selling computers anymore. Yeah, I think that's that's been an argument for a really long time. When As soon as they started adding video and things like that, people were saying, well, why do they still call it iTunes? But it's not to be taken literally. It's, it's a brand. Yeah, it, it started as Tunes, and it became a brand once Apple expanded into videos and other content. It's worth noting that we are at the 20th anniversary of the i. It was in early May 1998 that Steve Jobs announced the iMac. It didn't ship until, I think, August. But this spawned a whole list of i's from iTunes to the iPod to iChat to iMovie iPhotos, iDVD, iWeb, iMessages. Yeah, and of course Apple's, and the iPhone, and the iPad, and the iBook, which was retired because it was a portable computer, and then they brought it back for the iBooks app. Apple is going to keep that i for a long time. I, I can't see the iPhone losing its name for a long time either. Well, uh, you couldn't drop i from the iPhone because then you'd be stuck with a phone, and it's it's not even a phone anymore, right? <laughs> it's a pocket computer. Yeah. Yes, what are they going to say? Apple Pocket Computer. Um, or for the iTunes Store, they will change the name to Apple Online Digital Distribution Service. <laughs> no, pe people who say that are, are just have some sort of wish fulfillment about the fact that they have a grudge that they're personally annoyed that it's called iTunes and it's somehow they've got this itch and Apple's going to have to scratch it. It's like grammarians. They yeah, hear, they, grammarians are bad. Yeah, you know, they hear the uh, they hear something that's so totally annoying they had to pull their hair out and stomp and shoot and spit until they, someone fixes it for them. Well, I've been on a crusade on Twitter lately. Whenever I see someone say something like "less people," I quote the tweet and I just say "fewer" because that really irks me. Oh, less and fewer. Yes. yes yeah, and fine. and my the other thing that irks me a lot is when I see people write about Moby Dick. Now, I am a charter founding member of the. Retain the hyphen in the title of Moby Dick Club. While Moby Dick only has a hyphen in the title, not anywhere else in the book, it is a hyphen in the title. So if you are referring to the title of the book, it must have the hyphen. But I think we should move on to... You don't, uh, you don't want to weigh in on the uh, number of spaces between sentences uh, debacle that's been going on? That was the thing that came out this week where people were saying that you read better if there are two spaces after a period. It's kind of funny because the articles were talking about that they did this test with people and they had them read, and I guess they did reading comprehension. And I think the article said something like, the test was done using Courier New Font, a typeface that most people don't use on computers. I write everything in a monospace font in a text editor because that's just the way you do it when you're used to using HTML or any other kind of code. I think I think we're straying from our well, it's all topic of a piece. Here. It's all of a piece. It, it's kind of like iTunes, right? That that the, the whole thing about the name, it's these niggling little things that people sign petitions about. Yeah, I don't even think really about the name when I see iTunes. I don't it's a banner. It's not a word. It's a it's definitely a brand for me. I don't even think about you that. You don't it, think Apple is a fruit company? Amazon is not always a river. Yeah. Anyway, one of the other things that people have been talking about, in fact, this same unnamed website was trying to sell this story that Apple was going to start selling high-resolution downloads. 
And, well, I've written a number of things about high-resolution audio, and for most people, it's a scam. It's a tough call. There are people who want it, but the problem is it's a tiny, tiny minority, but it's a very vocal minority. So it's really hard to judge percentage-wise. If you were to do a survey of people, would you possibly buy high-resolution audio? Most people say, well, yeah, because they don't really understand what it means. Well, it's like high-def television. It's like it's very obvious that high-def television is better than low-def. Yes, um, yes. So, you know, they hear high-res, uh, it sounds better. They might not know if they even need it. Well, whether you can even appreciate it. Right. Just as an aside, I've been writing an article in the past few days about high-resolution audio about the music industry, the hi-fi industry. And I came to a realization, I sent this article to our friend Chris Conacher to get some comments on it. And I came to a realization, if you have a high-resolution file, so let's take what people sort of consider the standard high-resolution file. It's 24 bits, which means you have more dynamic range, and it's 96,000 samples per second, 96 kilohertz, compared to 16-bit and 44,100 on a CD. Now, with the more samples per second, what this essentially does is it increases the frequency range. So it goes from the range of human hearing to the range that bats can hear. And in a back and forth by email, we were discussing this because there are some manufacturers like Sony, for example, that tout all of their high-res capable audio equipment. I was saying high-res speakers, all speakers are high-res. And he said, no, 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 because they're high-res because they have a higher frequency range. And I had never realized that. Of course, it makes sense, but how many people are listening to high-resolution files on speakers that only go to 20,000 hertz and saying that they sound better, whereas it's not just that they can't hear it, it's that their speakers can't reproduce it. Now, my speakers go to 28,000, which is relatively high for, what would I call them, high-end consumer, low-end audiophile. I have two pairs of focal chorus speakers. They're not what they call lifestyle speakers. No, no, they're better than focal. is is not a lifestyle company, no. They're, they're a real speaker company. So theoretically, I could hear up to 56 kilohertz on my speakers. So I would, if there were musical information there, I would be hearing it. But most speakers only go to 20,000, 20 kilohertz, 20,000 hertz. Sony even has what they call a high-res compatible Bluetooth speaker. Now, I find that quite funny because, you know, in a little 100 or $150 Bluetooth speaker, there's no way it's got the chops to play high frequencies like that. But the whole question of audio quality is one of quality versus convenience. When you take a, let's take Apple as an example, they use AAC files at 256 kilobits per second, other services, MP3, maybe 320. You've got files that have a certain amount of size. An hour of music is, what, 60 or 80 megabytes. When you get a high-resolution file, an hour of music is one and a half gigabytes. You're multiplying by a factor of 10 when you get up into the higher resolutions. Now, this may not be a problem for a lot of people at home because they may have fast enough internet connections, but if you're streaming music it makes absolutely no sense because you're using up all your data just to listen to an album. Of course, if you're streaming music, you're generally listening in an environment where you can't appreciate better sound quality anyway. You're listening on portable device with headphones. You're in the street on the bus. Uh, you know, there are exceptions to everything because you know there's going to be somebody that says, yeah, but I listen to it like this. I listen to with noise-canceling headphones. I always listen... Uh, I 
I, I can afford the bandwidth. I can, you know, I can make all these concessions. So there probably is a minority. Well, you that- and I stream at home. So we are in an environment where we could appreciate the quality. But I think the majority of people don't. I think the majority of people stream on the go or to Bluetooth speakers or to a HomePod or, you know, different devices like that. Or, or listening with EarPods or, you know. Yeah, well, AirPods, AirPods, EarPods, they certainly don't have any sort of frequency range or bass that would reproduce music very well at all. So I think the question of high resolution is probably a moot question for Apple. However, I wouldn't be surprised if they start streaming and or selling lossless in the future. All right. Now, why do you think they might do that? Well, there are some services like Tidal, like Cobuzz, that are getting a small niche audience of people who want to stream lossless quality. And and I think in many cases, these are people who are listening at home. They're listening, they're, they're streaming to a computer, to a, a device, whether streaming directly to a streaming device or Apple TV or whatever it is. And I think people who really appreciate music will say, yes, even if I can't hear it, there's probably a difference between the, the AAC file and the lossless file. So they would charge extra for this sort of service, you would think? Well, that's the question. Would they? How many years ago did they go from the 128K to the 256K? Six, seven, eight years ago. Yeah, this is the same time that they stripped DRM from music. Yeah. They did charge extra initially, and then a couple of years later, it ended up being the same price. But of course, they had raised the price from 99 cents to what's more common now, $1.29. So, you know, you did eventually pay more, but it doesn't cost more. It really doesn't. They've got the files that actually Apple has files, not just in lossless, but they have them in high resolution. Record labels upload at least they have for many years, high-resolution files. It's true that the older catalog that Apple has in the iTunes store won't be high-resolution, but it will be at least CD-quality lossless. So they could charge more. They could just say, well, here's an option, same price, to make it more interesting, because Spotify doesn't have lossless. Yeah, um, but Tidal does, and I, I, I suppose Apple could, you know, in order to hold on to that niche audience or, or for other prestige reasons, iTunes also sells lossless um, for the ability to say that, you know, to give a perceptual benefit that we also do. We're still into music and we're still into the best kind of music. So I suppose they could do that. But uh, pricing, I would think, would be, I, you know, because it's the sort of thing you want to enter into. You want to opt into because it is more bandwidth to download these things. About twice as much. Yeah. yeah. And so you've if got not to be, more, depending on the music. So you've got to, you know, be ready to accept these things. So I would think that there'd be some kind of opt-in. But I can't, uh, like you say, I think that they might they might charge a little extra like they did originally with the 256K and then bring it into, into parity with everything else or bring everything else up to it. But it would have... Yeah, it would have to be a choice, though, because you may not want to use your bandwidth for it. I wouldn't, if I'm streaming at home, I'd say fine. If I'm out streaming where the bandwidth isn't there, it's not even the cost, but just the speed isn't there, that might be a little bit annoying. I'm not that concerned about it because I I don't really hear that much of a difference when I listen to something lossless in 256K, which is already a very good quality. So another thing that we already know that Apple is going to do is that they're going to increase the video content that they have in iTunes. And it may actually be part of Apple Music, which makes things a little bit confusing. For now, Apple Music has some videos that are documentaries about musicians and producers, and they have music videos. 
so it kind of makes sense. But somehow they're going to start bringing in original video content, sort of like Netflix originals. And what are they going to call that? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen anything on it. Um, what do they call the the arm of Apple that is working with it now? Or, or do they call it anything? Do they just say we're producing TV shows? That's they just say, yeah, they've... Well, they, they haven't actually announced a whole lot. And, and when they have, I think it's only to the trade press. But they haven't talked about an actual name. Will they call it Apple Video? Will they call it Apple TV? You know, you got the problem that there's already a device called Apple TV. There's an iOS app called TV. It gets a little confusing. And one thing that Apple is generally, with the exception of the I, they tend to use these banal words as, as product names. You know, pages, numbers, and keynote. Even GarageBand is fairly banal. The Apple TV, the TV app. It seems logical that they would offer their video service together with the Apple Music Music service. Right. So bundle it with Apple Music. Yeah. Because this differentiates them from Spotify. Right. Who is really the main competition. For Spotify to go into video content, they've got, they'd have years of catch up and they'd need a lot more money than they have. Yeah. And they've got to stabilize with their, with their, business plan now because they're they're losing money so well they're not only losing money but since the ipo which technically wasn't an ipo i think sony and warner have cashed in a lot of their stock and i remember writing about this a few months ago saying you know everyone knows it's going to happen and people were criticizing me oh no they're not going to do this they're investing for the long term it's like seriously no they picked up uh, i think it's like two billion dollars in stock was sold and that's yeah, yeah, you know, that's a big chunk of change for those guys, and I'm sure they're pretty pleased with it. But now they, I think one of the, you know, we've talked about Spotify in the past, and and they've got a rough road, a rough road to hoe, um, in order to to keep up with Amazon and Apple, because Apple, both Apple and Amazon, can afford to lose the money. They have to pay licensing, exactly. and they don't mind throwing that money away, um, yeah. in order to keep people in their ecosystems. So it's, that's why I'm, that's why I said earlier that if if Apple does decide to drop file sales, Amazon will pick up the slack in a heartbeat. And I don't think yeah. Apple wants that. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with the video. Uh, I think as a as a Apple Flix service, it would have to be combined in the uh, in that f some For You section or something like that, right? would have to be in there. Yeah, I would think so. Apple Flix, that's a nice name for it. But see, they have to have a name that encompasses both the music and the video. I can't see them having separate music and video subscriptions because I think the the real the real wedge for them is 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 marrying the two. And and I wouldn't expect Apple to have a lot of video to start with. But I think Apple's long term strategy is to convince the movie and TV studios to let them stream everything that's in the iTunes store after a certain amount of time. So let's say you've got a new movie for three months, we sell it and rent it, and then after that, it's streamable. Well, I think if a service like that had a, enough subscribers, it would be good for everybody. Well, it'd be good for us. Yeah. Um, it would be good for Apple. The question whether the studios would agree to it. Well, I think they'd want to see some numbers. They'd want to see some money, and that's how it would work. J just to backtrack a second, it's worth noting that, what did you say, about $2 billion in stock that Warner and Sony sold. Worth noting that artists do not get one cent of that money. This was equity that the record labels put in, and they knew they were going to get a profit without having to pay any of it out to their artists. So artists have yet again gotten screwed, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I don't want to, um, you know, pick a fight with any advocates for this, but you know, musicians negotiate a contract with their record labels, and the record label pays them. And you know, if you've got a problem with the way that was negotiated, either renegotiate or go someplace else. Um, 
I mean, that's just the way it is. I, there is some thought that Spotify would like to be the middleman themselves and kind of sidestep the record labels altogether. That is, have some kind of deal um, with musicians themselves. And that may eliminate or allay some of their financial difficulties with the record labels. I can't see that working for a lot of artists because artists, they sign with a label and that label has an exclusive right to distribute their music. They may get some big name artists and, and it would be good for a couple of press releases and a cocktail party. But this you're not going to get 100,000 artists working directly with Spotify. If anything, the accounting would just be a nightmare for them. You know, on, on, the, on the one hand, it's already problematic that they have to basically keep track of everything that's streamed ever. And they've got software that does this. But then they're only paying a certain number of record labels. And then these aggregators that bring together independent labels, which then funnel the, the money to the labels. But imagine if they had hundreds of thousands of indie artists. And you probably can sign up as an indie artist now, but... It's probably too onerous a process to, to make it worthwhile, and it's probably intentional. You don't, they don't want that, no, no more than Apple or any other company does. So I think what's interesting is, you know, we, we're, we're old, and we like to talk about our early years of discovering and enjoying music. And can you imagine if it was 1977 and we woke up one day and we had all of this, not just music, but video and, and audio books and e-books? And it's, it's, just, it's funny you pose that that question because uh, I just finished reading an article with Johnny Marr, the guitar player for the Smiths, and he was asked a similar question. If you could go back and be 15 years old and have all of this stuff. And he said, put me in the time machine right away. And uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine having access to music and books and everything, knowledge uh, as a teenager, uh, everything would have been different. Um, so it's interesting to wonder what, you know, what is going to become of iTunes? What? How will we be listening and, and watching media in five years? Will we still be using iTunes? Will we be using tablets? Will we have desktops anymore? I, I, mean, I think that's too short a term for, for a groundbreaking change, like no more computers and, and it's going to be like a screen on the wall that you talk to. I don't think that's going to happen. But I think, to be honest, that we've reached a point, and, and I say this a lot about different technological objects and I think we've reached a point where this is it. I, I mean, we may get our streaming music in a different way, but we're going to get our streaming music. It doesn't matter what the source is anymore. What we've done is we've is we've disembodied the music from its medium, whether it be an LP or a CD or whatever it is, and it's in the cloud, and we're going to get it from the cloud. It doesn't matter how we get it. This is the end. We have reached the singularity of accessing music. What matters now is how it's marketed, is how it's promoted. It's whether artists can afford to keep making good music or whether this sort of concentration of distribution is going to reduce the number of artists who can actually become popular. Because when you have so much choice, it's harder to choose or you just make the easy choice of what's put in front of you. Right. Well, I think that's what most people want to do. They, they want to make the easy choice. And Apple's trying to, to make that happen. I mean, before the advent of of I guess before the CD, before people needed to have music, we've talked about this a million times. Before people needed to to load their music devices with music, not many people bought music. You know, people had a few record albums, and that was about it. It was it was the mavens like us and and collectors and 
on Completus who who did most of the the record buying and the tape buying. But after uh, you know when the when the Walkman comes comes along, when the iPod comes along, when the iPhone comes along, and you need to feed that device with media. That's when the explosion happened. But now you don't have to do that. Now you don't have to buy the music. Now you don't. Now you only need to buy access to the music. And I think people really like that system. But think of the fact that back in the day, did you know anyone who did not have a stereo in the house? Uh, it would be very rare. Most people I knew had stereos, sure. The ones that didn't, we kind of wrote off as being somewhat unsophisticated. But yeah, most people I knew did. Right, but that meant that you could always buy a record album or a CD as a Christmas present for someone. So even if people didn't buy a lot of music, they could still get some music, a couple of CDs a year or something. Yeah, my wife, when I first met her, she had about 20 LPs, a handful of CDs, and a handful of cassettes. She was a very casual music listener. Yeah, but that part of the market is gone now because most people don't have stereos at home. Whether they're you know, full-size stereos with, with separate, uh, you know, an amplifier or, say, a turntable CD player and speakers, or those all-in-one stereos became popular in the 80s and the 90s. Most people, they just got a Bluetooth speaker, if even that, and they're going to get music through their phone. Some people may gift someone an album from iTunes or Amazon, but that, that, whole, that whole segment of the market, that Christmas market, is disappearing. Yeah. And that's a huge market for music. Well, with smart speakers happening, and you can talk to the smart speaker and just say, play my favorite music, you don't need the physical product. You don't need the files. You just, the sound comes out, just like a radio. Yep. And I think a lot of people are enthralled by that. That number is growing all the time. I'm seeing a lot of radio articles about how many, you know, because radio is trying to get back into the game. By, through smart speakers, that's where they, they see, uh, you know, a, a resurgence of radio listening. And it's starting to happen because not only do radio companies offer broadcasts, but they also offer podcasts of their shows, and you can get those as well. Yeah. So it, it's 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 just like radio, but just a, a Flash Gordon version of radio. Well, we don't know where iTunes is going, but one thing I appreciate about streaming music today is the ability to find some old music that you've never thought of listening to or haven't heard of in a while. And you know what? I'm going to pick something in this week's Next Track selection that goes back even more than 50 years. Well, then let's start the traveling music. All right, you're obviously eager to get to it. What is your next track this week, Kurt? For my next track this week, I was planning on presenting a new box set of CDs that I just bought. And it's an extraordinary box set, and it's great, and I've been listening to it all weekend. And then I went into iTunes, and I went to the For You tab, and I said, ah, you know that feeling, Doug, every once in a while, you don't know what to listen to, and you come across something, and all of a sudden, it's like, that's a good idea. Well, the For You tab highlighted a new album by Frank Sinatra called Standing Room Only. It is three CDs worth of live tracks from 1966, 1974, and 1987, and I started playing it, and Come Fly With Me comes on, and I just said, ah, you know that feeling when it's just music that that is just there to be entertaining, that it has no pretensions, it has no necessarily a social message, it's not aggressive, it's well-performed, both musically and vocally. Now, granted, lots of people listening maybe don't like that genre of music, and when I was young, I didn't either. I think my parents had a couple of Sinatra albums but it wasn't something I listened to. It's over the years, you just keep hearing these in soundtracks or occasionally on, on the radio or something. And I've really grown to appreciate Sinatra. In particular, 
what was about a year or a year and a half ago, there was this long documentary about Sinatra's life that was, I think, on Netflix. And it was really interesting to to learn about his life. And and at the time, I bought a biography that had come out about him, and I haven't read it yet. So I pulled it off the shelf today, and I decided that in the coming week or so, I'm going to listen to this, listen to some other Sinatra, read the biography, and learn about him. Th- there's something weird about Sinatra's music. It's, you know, when we're looking at the, the sort of classic period of the 50s and the 60s, when, when he was most popular, it's really, it's musical, it's, it's well-performed, it's well-sung, but it's very white it's very upper class aspirational. It talks about things like gambling in a song like Luck Be a Lady Tonight, or it talks about how it was a very good year for blue blooded girls of independent means and we'd ride in limousines. It's really upper class. It really represents a very strange period of people buying into an image. And of course, Sinatra wasn't the only one, you know, all of the Rat Pack and there were other singers. In any case, not to go on too much about Sinatra, though, maybe we should do an episode about him at some point. This new set of three CDs worth of live tracks, three and a quarter hours, is it's just classic Sinatra. So, Standing Room Only by Frank Sinatra. Doug, what are you listening to? I saw in my Twitter feed the other day that Tony Kinman, who was a member of the band Rank and File, had passed away. And I thought, Rank and File rings a bell. And so I looked them up, and sure enough, I recognized their first album called Sundown from 1982. Rank and File were... I guess you'd say an early alt-country band from Texas, and actually at the time they were considered punk country or cowpunk, and and this is before No Depression was a thing, almost a decade before Insurgent Country, if you know about that stuff. Alt-country is a much more populated genre now than it was back then in the early 80s, and rank and file were like the, uh, well, they were in the first wave of alt-country, I guess you could say. Tony Kinman and his brother Chip were not only founders of rank and file, but also another California punk band, The Dills. Maybe you've heard of them. So anyway, I remembered the rank and file song Amanda Ruth, which was on their first album. It was either on MTV a lot or I, I seem to remember playing it on the radio too. But anyway, I knew the song sort of has a Texas Western swing to it. This album is available as a two-album collection of their releases on Slash Records, the California label that had bands like the Del Fuegos, the Blasters, Los Lobos, and X. And the X connection, I thought, was interesting because members of X perform as the Knitters, and as the Knitters, they do alt-country. I'm a big uh, X and Knitters fan, so I'm sure they knew about Rank and File. They certainly knew about the Dills. So anyway, Rank and File... This is a, a really good record. You know, I hate what people think country music is. It's it's not nearly all hee-haw music, you know? And Rank and File really infused some energy into uh, country and Western standard stuff. It's it's not punk like you think. It's it's not hee-haw punk. It's more DIY, garage bandy, but very slick. Great record. Uh, and even though this is called punk country... It's not heavy or distorted. At its most enthusiastic, it's on the level of, you know, pretty much straight rock and roll. I enjoyed revisiting it. Rank and Files' first album, Sundown, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. 
I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.